man, I'm, I'm on a really, I'm on a really crazy, like, anti-engineer, like, tear today, aren't I? These dang engineers, man. Why do we need that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, we got GitHub Copilot coming out. We don't need engineers. Welcome to another episode of the Work in Progress podcast. I've got my co-host here. Hey. (laughs) I'm a a man of few words some days. (laughs) Uh, Man of few words some days. I love it. Uh, And today, I guess we're back with another episode. Yeah, it's uh, our second second episode after our, our our unplanned hiatus (laughs) hiatus <laughs> so we're, we're just getting back into the swing of things um i actually have a really fun topic i want to talk about today and I, yeah? I think it very much relates to um something that 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 has hit close to to home for me um it's this this idea that uh the the skills and mindset required for uh, greenfield projects is is different enough than those of uh, you need for for legacy projects uh, that it could affect outcomes, not just for for the individual, but also for the team. Um, Yeah, and that's a great one. So just just for the listeners, uh, especially for folks who are new to the industry, if you've never heard of Greenfield before, those are just like start from scratch projects where you don't have any any infrastructure, any existing code uh, in mm-hmm. place. And so you're, you're literally starting from square one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, for, for story time, um, for me, like I've, I've jumped from, you know, startup to startup to startup, but at each of those startups, there was already, uh, a project in motion. There's already code to be worked in and built upon. Um, I've never actually started a, a company related project from scratch before. Um, which is, which is nuts given, you know, mm-hmm. what, 10, 11 years of experience now. Um, I, I, that honestly probably drives some of my, uh, imposter syndrome personally is <laughs> I, I don't know what, it, like I can set up, uh, a web server just from scratch using scaffolding from whatever, you know, framework that I'm in, but I've never actually done it and then deployed it to production. <laughs> oh Yeah. Yeah, and so that's, that's that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, um, yeah, like this this hits close to home because it's like I I can jump into existing code bases, which for better or worse might have spaghetti code, might have ugly code, and <laughs> I've seen it n- time and time again where other engineers can jump into this and be like, I don't know what the previous engineers were doing. This is ugly. This is hell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? Um, that kind of goes back to the, the the topic is like, you know, you need to have this mindset of jumping into your old code that it's not going to be the way that you expect it to be. It's going to, there's going to be decisions that have been made that led to this quote unquote bad code. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's to some extent, I think it's really unfair for engineers to come into that and then say, these previous engineers were crap because why would they make this decision? <laughs> 
the right? history like, of engineers that came before you in this spot right now. Everyone was garbage. Everyone wrote shit code and nobody knew how to do their jobs properly, right? <laughs> yeah. It's 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 a never-ending cycle. Like mm-hmm. it's it's funny because uh, one of my well, former coworkers I actually got invited to his um going away happy hour at uh his his I guess still current company. And so I'm coming in and they introduced me. It's like, hey, Alan mm-hmm. used to work here. And it's uh, it was, it's funny. It was like they joked around about, oh, what, what, was it you that wrote, you know, this, this ugly code? <laughs> it was like, always that. Yeah, I'll own it. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like something you got to understand is you don't have that historical context into why that decision was made. Mm. May- maybe they were terrible engineers or maybe they were operating with very limited information. Yeah. Like, yeah, as you know, I, I'd be interested to know, Min. Like, as a manager, I'm sure you've seen that happen numerous times when you've onboarded engineers. <laughs> like, <laughs> how how do you, how do you like talk them off that that high horse of, you know, like thinking they're better than the previous engineer? Oh my gosh, um, there is so much to unpack there, and uh, I'm not even entirely sure where to begin. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I guess I'll start. Let's just start with that question, right? Like, how how do you actually um, talk to engineers about this? Because you're you're totally right, and and honestly, I think there's um, there's more than just greenfield brownfield. You know, um, brand new projects versus uh, maintenance and existing. There's sort of like different types of work as well. Um, that that you know, I at least. I've noticed this pattern. There's sort of like the uh, the hardening and ongoing maintenance type work. Um, really like going in and taking uh, something that's feature complete. We'll just say it's feature complete, right? And scaling it for for more uh, for more traffic or uh, optimizing it to to you know clean up some some things like maybe tail latencies and and uh, uh, just general response codes, your 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 tail performance, your ninety nine nines, and all of that, and um, ones, yeah. <laughs> there's there's like that kind of work um, that that you know whether it or not it's a green or brownfield project. I mean, to be honest, like almost all of that is technically brownfield because the code has to exist, right? Mm-hmm. All of those um, they they involve different mindsets just like you're you're kind of talking about. And and I think you're absolutely right that sometimes when engineers come into these situations sort of uh, I'll just say with like a, a a different mindset, uh it can lead to a lot of problems for sure. I I think one of the biggest um learnings in my own career and uh, advice that I frequently give to people coming into these situations is is that context is king like context is absolutely king um you know one of my mentors over the years uh taught me something and and it's always stuck with me since um he said that in order to refactor something you need to understand the historical context in which it was written because if you don't understand the historical context in which it was written, then any code that you write or rewrite or reproduce in any way, shape, or form 
will always be missing some key business element, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and that stuck with me. It really, really stuck with me because I think that's really the the piece of advice that got me to view legacy code or brownfield code in a very, very different sense, you know? Yeah. yeah. Just like you were hinting at, uh, this code, like, <laughs> okay, to, to use another, a, a different life analogy for a minute, uh, you know how it, it, lawyers can sometimes make the defense that my client was under duress? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yep. Well, all of code is basically written under duress in some way, shape, or form, right? <laughs> That's fair. That's absolutely fair. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's easy to look back at some of this code or some of these projects and be like, oh, it's so ugly. It's so unmaintainable. It's so spaghetti. Uh, and, and people forget about that duress, right? <laughs> that the engineer was likely under, that the um, the org was most likely under. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and all of that absolutely plays a major factor right yeah yeah um it's so it's it's interesting because you know pulling way back from another conversation we've had previously about average 10 years of engineers Mm -hmm. being Mm -hmm. like two years um that's that's pretty short amount of time it is it's how how much do you think that plays into this this feedback cycle of i'm not the, the engineer's not sticking around long enough to see the outcomes of their past decisions. Like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, so, I mean, I think that's a facet. Um, it's also one of those things that like to really build historical context to where you can really tell a compelling story about something you, you have to spend a, a, a decent amount of time in within a, a space, you know? Um, now I, I, I want to be very clear. I don't want to say that you can't be an effective engineer without having spent a certain amount of time in something. Mm-hmm. Um, like I don't want to allude to, uh, hiring practices, you know, that I'm going to draw a very clear distinction there. Um, the time I'm, I'm kind of referring to is like within a very specific code project, right? Mm-hmm. Someone who's only been there three months compared to someone who's been there six or a year or 10 years is going to look very, very different, right? Yep. The kind of story that they tell about this code base is going to be very, very different. Yeah, And like, it does take a, a good amount of time in order to kind of know that, uh, that flow of things, right? Know the flow of events. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's, it's sort of the difference between just being able to say what the last major refactor was and maybe why you did it versus knowing why the code base literally exists, period. <laughs> and and what very nuanced, very specific business reasons resulted in certain weird looking paths or unexpected code paths existing, right? Right. Right. Yeah. No, um, that's I think that's absolutely valid. Um I've 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 had previous experiences where I've I've had uh coworkers who've been around the company for like years so you would think they would know mm-hmm. a lot about the project and everything <laughs> the ins and outs of it but you know surprisingly maybe not surprisingly they they actually don't like yeah one, one of the the biggest complaints i've heard from from folks like that is i don't know what anyone else is working on so yeah while while i've been here the longest i might have the most business context i don't know what went into implementation um 
And so I think there's there's a very clear distinction that needs to be made here of while they may have that business context built mm-hmm. up, implementation details may not exist for a particular part of the system. Um, yeah. That's 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 such a fascinating like I, I think that's such a fascinating thought because, um, uh, you know, since I, I'm sure actually a lot of probably younger or earlier career engineers and people getting into the field probably notice this. I, I'm talking about folks who maybe have like a year, two years, three years of experience or so. And when you're interacting with, you know, folks who have 10, 15, 20 years of experience, right? Um I'm sure there's like this notion that some of you might actually feel that it's like, oh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Like, what did you learn in that time? Like, I learned so much in my first one, two, three. And, you know, I can basically keep up with you. Like, mm-hmm. there's that that sort of thought, right? Yep. Uh, I know that's not everybody, but I know for a fact it, it does exist out there, right? Right. Um, and something that uh i i feel like that that particular mindset tends to miss is that uh the the really experienced people sometimes have a bit of a leg up because they've been looking at a problem space for that long right mm-hmm. they've been working in a problem space that long they've tried many solutions and seen which ones work and which ones don't now to just to immediately counter the point that i just made uh I also think there are lots of individuals who've simply spent a long time doing the same tasks and not necessarily developing a deeper contextual understanding of that space, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, I, I don't know how it relates, but it reminded me of um, <laughs> something I, I listened to uh, a podcast this morning of um, you don't want to get complacent with what yeah. you're, you're working on because tech moves so quickly that if you aren't your ideas aren't being challenged your your decisions on architecture on design Mm -hmm. aren't being challenged you're going to be left behind um and (laughs) tying tying this back further to uh you know our other discussions about you know what makes a good engineer is your ability Mm -hmm. to constantly learn because you could be with a company in the same code base for years but as that code base grows you're going to have to learn and understand what other parts of the system are doing and you know, why design decisions for those parts of the system were made. Um, You know, your, your own code changes over time. There's, there's not a day where I'm like looking at previous code and I'm like, this is, this is who wrote this get blamed says it's me, but I don't believe it, (laughs) but you can't argue those facts. Um, Yeah. But you know, you got to keep learning from those things. And Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, this is where that, that, that adage of, you know, be egoless comes from it's like yeah no matter how much time you've spent in this thing you're never gonna understand all of it yeah you know and i'll, I'll share another um perspective to the same sort of idea of like constantly learning constantly engaging yourself in this um something that i've started to to say to to people as as advice as well um being curious you know adopting that uh that sense of curiosity i think that is is sort of another way of thinking about this cycle of like constant learning um adopting this mindset of constantly being curious right be curious as to why the space is the way it is right 
let's just say uh, I'll, I'll take an, a really really easy example that's like miles deep and and you know miles wide search right the the problem space of search building a very very competent search feature we'll just even say you know there is so many different ways that that can go there is autocomplete search right there's tackling relevance there's sort of like human understood relevance with whatever context it is that you're you're implementing it in right mm-hmm uh, the, it, it just keeps going and going. And and then there's this massive trade-off between like a growing data space, so like how many results you're going to have with this challenge of keeping it always fast and snappy, right? Right. The, the challenges are really, really deep in this space. And someone might, in their first year of being an engineer, say, oh yeah, you know, I built some really neat like autocomplete, uh, I built a nice little autocomplete search box for my little web app. Mm-hmm. That's fine. That's awesome. But that's barely scratching the surface, right? Right. If someone were to say uh, they spent 10 years in search, they might go into all the all the different details of, you know, combining and splitting apart multiple dictionaries um, to, to handle different types of search, right? Mm-hmm. Talking about how they coordinate to different relevance across all of that. Like, it's such a deep space. And that's the part I mean about always being curious, right? Just because you got the thing to work doesn't mean there isn't more to learn about this. Yep. And I think like just to, you know, kind of uh, uh, wrap it up nicely, that's that's where becoming an expert kind of uh, takes shape. And that's kind of one of the difference, like the, the curiosity mindset, I think is a key uh, component of, jumping into green versus brownfield projects i yes i agree i think um curiosity is actually a common attribute for success in both sets of Mm -hmm. projects like it's it's just applied a little bit differently i think uh with new projects that curiosity goes into understanding requirements for for what you're building Mm. for for brownfield for legacy it's it's being applied to understanding how it got to this place and how it moves forward <laughs> from this place. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think with, with legacy, it's, it, it can be a little harder because you're, you're, you're taking historical context, needing to learn the why mm-hmm. and how it got here and then applying to new feature sets. Like how do I get from point A to B? Mm-hmm. Um, I think with Greenfield, you're just figuring out how to get from where from nothing to point a yeah um and i think that's that's one of those skills that you just develop over time naturally because you're constantly coming back to the code you wrote and changing it some more based off of changing <laughs> requirements um but one one of the biggest struggles i think that engineers face uh with legacy work is if it's too complicated for them mm-hmm. to just wrap their head around it's hard to stay motivated to want to work in there. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I, oh I, yeah, I, that that's a huge challenge to overcome. Um, usually from, from, you know, my own personal experience, but also from observing others, you can overcome it with, with some strong mentoring, like someone who had the historical context to be like, here's right. why this was built the way it was. You, you automatically just gain that, that, I don't know mm-hmm. what you call it. Uh, that gap that mm-hmm. is is 
is the a, a differentiator between greenfield and brownfield. But you know what happens when you're replacing an engineer that that has that historical context and is no longer there, but you you now have to own that code, right? And and you know what I think like this is probably one of the most interesting facets about uh, brownfield projects. And, and, you know, I sort of look at it as, as confidence, right? Confidence to change the, when you jump into a, let's just contrast it for a minute with greenfield projects. Mm -hmm. If you're building something net new, uh, chances are the requirements are relatively available to you. And if you have any sort of question about it, you can probably get that answered in, in, within, you know, the day, right? Mm -hmm. Probably a conversation, a Slack message or two. Um, you can pretty much figure it out, or you can pull your peers together and and literally figure out and design a solution, right? If it's right. really that big of a problem. With brownfield projects, there's sort of this ever floating um, haze around whether or not you can change it, right? right? Like, let's just put aside the comprehending piece for a minute. Let's just say you found a package, a a batch of code, a set of files whatever, and you know for a fact what this thing should do, right? Because it's been clear to you, someone's been hounding you, they're like, hey, I need it to blah, and it's not blahing. Yeah. <laughs> so you know for a fact what this set of files has to actually accomplish, and you just can't figure out through the spaghetti and through the tangled knots and everything uh, how it accomplishes that, right? Right. And that instinct, it just starts to well up inside you, you're like, I want to just rewrite it. I can just rewrite this and 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 it would at most be a file, a single piece of code that I, I could easily test. I could introduce unit tests and everything for it. Great practices. And it would be so much better. The That, that instinct to do so, I, I sort of lost my uh, train of thought as I was going through that. But uh, I think what I was going to try and say about it is that um with with brownfield projects like that your 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 confidence to change it is drastically tied to or, or is is in large part tied to external factors right mm -hmm. unless there is that mentor or that knowledge expert who can who can basically tell you yeah you've got it or no you're actually missing things here or there there's sort of always this discomfort that says oh man if you delete this could cause an issue somewhere else right yep. maybe someone who does care about it being in this very specific way just hasn't spoken to you yet and so you're left in this weird little bit of a lurch right you're like i know it's broken in some way i know how i could fix it but i can't figure out the surgery involved and i also can't just replace it wholesale because i might break something else right. then what do you do right this is this is where you hope <laughs> that there's documentation or some solid unit testing right. around it right like you're you're hoping as a as an engineer in this space like uh and and i think this is what ultimately contributes to a lot of like stressors and um and 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 cognitive load right mm -hmm. you're you're looking at this bundle of spaghetti and you're not actually sure if you can do anything about it even if you know a path forward you're like well i'm kind of unsure um 
I think it, it I think it violates a core uh, a core value of of engineers, you know, autonomy, autonomy to go and do and change and mm-hmm. build and rebuild, right? Right. And this is I, this is the biggest challenge that I face as an engineer too. Is <laughs> if there's some mess that I absolutely understand and want to change, but I also know it's going to take a good chunk of time, I need to make that justification to my whoever I'm reporting to to say, hey, I need a solid two weeks to get this in better shape. <laughs> because like there, there is risk involved with mm-hmm. making fact, refactors. Like um, one of my, my, my previous, uh, my previous boss, he's like, um, you, you can't just make these assumptions uh, without, you know, understanding. Um, right. And, and, you know, at my current place, I don't have full historical context. I have a good chunk of it, but anything I'm doing, I'm like, what sort of problems did they face? Like, I know right. what I want to change, how I want to change it, but I guarantee you I'm going to run into dragons. And yeah. that's, that, that absolutely terrifies me because <laughs> if you're doing this on in production systems, it's like, how's this going to affect the end user too? So yeah. the, 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 you know, going back to what you said, it comes back to confidence. It's like, am, am I confident in doing this and being able to react to it quickly enough um, when things eventually do hit the fan? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um, but, but that's that's the ever ever uh, present challenge that engineers have to face. Is like, yeah, where do I draw the line between that that good enough refactor versus a wholesale uh, design change yeah. that makes things simpler? I, I do want to touch on just a couple of little things that I think actually do help out in this situation, um, uh, both as an engineer and as a manager, uh, as, as somebody who will be, you know, who, who um, let's say, is in charge of a couple projects like this. Um, the tendency is always to just, like, I need two weeks, replace this thing wholesale. I think both engineers and managers as a whole need to get better at being able to, to make piecemeal progress. You know, I think this is just a general across the uh, industry um, thing that we can all get better at because this, this is what it sounds like on, on the flip side, right? If we kind of reverse the roles for a minute, this is kind of what it sounds like. And and I know a lot of you are going to be like, Oh yeah, no, I've been in that spot. Um, product product comes to you. They say we have an ex- I I personally have an exciting new product. I want you to build. Uh, it provides absolutely zero value until it's fully built and out in the hands of customers. I have not talked to any customer, but I know instinct they will love this thing. We will. It will be worth billions, right? That's what they're coming to you saying, and they're like, and I need you to build this uh, for the next six months. Deal. Sounds absolutely insane, right? Almost no business would ever sign up for that. Most engineers would be looking at you cockeyed and, and a little uh, very, very skeptical, right? That's what it sounds like when an engineer comes to someone and says, hey, man, this code is broke. First of all, they don't even believe you there because it got them where they're at today, mm-hmm. right? So you're you're an engineer. You're saying this code is broke. It's really bad. And, and this is usually the language that, that will accompany it, right? The code is bad. It's unmaintainable. There's so much tech debt, right? 
It's hard to understand. It's hard to understand. There's all of these words. They don't necessarily mean anything to mm -hmm. the person hearing it, but that's what you're saying, right? And then you're like, I need to take two weeks to rebuild this. The first thought is, well, so you want, you're asking me to put everything else on hold for you to take care of something that's hard, un unmaintainable, and words that I don't necessarily actually equate to anything tangible. Despite it's like, that's a hard sell. Despite it currently already working. Yeah, despite it currently already working and getting us, having gotten us here. Yeah. Really tough sell, right? Yep. Really, really tough sell. Uh, kind of going back to my point, I think that as engineers and as as product people and and uh, and people people, uh, we need to get better with grappling with smaller incremental changes. And and I think a lot of that comes down to a little bit of a uh, a little bit of attitude and a little bit of of just a little bit more creative and and free thinking around process. You know, I I think there's a tendency for people to only want to release fully working, fully fleshed out um work and and that's a little bit of a that's a little bit of a trap right yeah. that's what prevents you from getting a partial refactor of maybe just a handful of methods instead of you know having to do the whole the whole shebang right right fail fast so, really plays into that yeah yeah <laughs> and so so you know talking to that one thing that i've i've learned through experience um is for as as an engineer yes I've, you know, we run into those problems all the time. We run into those feelings all the time. The, the best way to approach, at, at least from what I've I've seen and done myself, is I'm going to come initially with those exact words. Like I I don't understand. This is convoluted. This is hard to understand. I I'm terrified of touching this code. We need to redo it. Um, what's worked though is me taking like legitimately taking some time, half a day to mm -hmm. really, really flesh out what that means. Like identifying, if we don't do this, here's some roadblocks we're going to run into in the mm -hmm. future. Because at, at this point that I've reached, I understand future-facing work coming down the mm -hmm. pipeline. I understand how the current spaghetti stuff that is, is blocking me or making me feel uncomfortable, uh, how that's going to play into that. Um, I need to make it more apparent to my product owner, my, my, my manager, whoever mm -hmm. um, is driving the work, like, here's the risks. If we don't do it, here's the problems we're going to face. This, this doesn't scale because the moment it's, it hits, I don't know, a thousand requests per, per minute. Like we're going to get backlogged on our job queue because yeah, whatever, like attaching specific cases where it's crucial to the business to solve and mm -hmm. justifying the refactor. Yeah. And, and I think that's where, some early career engineers struggle yeah absolutely i totally agree with you there and and that that by the way that's a skill right that's a communication skill uh, being able to both sympathize and uh and and you know to to pull a a, a phrase from a different uh arena uh to be able to code switch a little bit your your own personal language to to really better uh, communicate right mm -hmm. the the concept of of learning the language of the person that's listening right that's that really comes into play 
Uh, I guarantee you, if you're trying to justify this refactor and you tell them we will not be able to serve more than 100 customers without this thing literally breaking and falling over, that will make that is the justification for itself. Almost yeah. every product person will understand that. They're like, wait, what? We can only have like 100 customers doing this at the same time before this thing crashes? No, no. Like, by all means, we need to get that fixed. Mm -hmm. They will tell you. They will suddenly tell you, we need to get this fixed, right? Yep. Their tone will flip-flop entirely. Um, and, and like, I don't want to make this seem like... I, I think, like, some feedback that I have gotten over the years is that, like... Oh, I like, I don't want to speak the business language, right? Like, I don't want to, to have to think about things in, in that way because I'm not a product person. Aren't they the product persons? Isn't that their job? And, you know, to that, I'd say, I mean, yes, they are the product person, but so are you. Like, you're literally building the product, you know, and being able to represent that that's that's a sign of maturity that's a sign of being able to to poke your head out of just the 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 editor right and being able to to both see and speak to the implications of the code that you write and and so yeah <laughs> i think going back to the very very first few episodes we we created this is a team sport like yeah mm -hmm. you may not want to be a product person or a salesperson but it, just as much as those people, the, the sales and the product folks are relying on you to build it, you're relying on them to understand how to sell it. Yeah. Like uh, that, 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 that's another common thing that I see with engineers. It's like, everyone should just listen to me because I understand this code the best. It's mm -hmm. like, yes, that, that may be the case, but if you try to sell the code as is mm -hmm. without the sales skills, it's probably mm -hmm. not going to sell. Yeah, absolutely. It, like under and you know, like I want to, I want to like it, just pick on that just a little bit more, because um, it's not always just about selling something, right? Like it's really when I, uh, I, I think like my own personal evolution. This can, this is definitely a topic for for another chat, another time. Uh, just the role of product, right? Like product management, I think, is one of the most nebulous, uh, uh, hard to grapple areas uh, and, and one of the most diverse um, in, in actual workplaces. And, and I mean, like from place to place to place, I think I, the, the role of product and the, the types of things product, uh, product managers, product owners, product people work and, and do is wildly different, mm -hmm. I, I think. Um, but anyways, that, that that can be a different conversation. I, like, really quickly, it's not just about selling, right? It's it's understanding the market, and it's, it's understanding the customers, and it's understanding their problems, what their problem is. I think this is a bit of a trap for engineers. Engineers are very, very solution-oriented, right? No matter what it is, it's like, oh, I can build that. Oh, I can, I can, I can create something that does exactly that, right? The problem is when you're so solution oriented, you don't tend to listen very deeply. And, and as soon as you hear something, you treat that as the problem when it's sometimes not, right? So uh, just, just to, again, I'm going to tie this to real life, right? Significant other comes home. Then they look like they're, they, they, they give out an exasperated sigh and they do one of these things. <sighs> 
They set their keys down, right? They just got home. They just do that. You go, hey, what's wrong? They say, nothing. Being solution-oriented, being very engineering-focused, you're like, oh, they said nothing, therefore no problem, nothing to solve. Easy, done. Is that really this the reality, though? Not right. Not really, right? <laughs> or, or if they, or if you ask them, it's like, no, really, what's wrong? They tell you, but mm-hmm. then they're not looking for a solution, right? But then they're not actually looking for you to actually do anything about it. There you go. That's <laughs> it's, it's multifaceted. Yep. Product people, it's their job to navigate that situation and to really understand what the problem actually is for the customer right Mm -hmm. and to guide the product and and the decisions and the software that's being built in a way that delivers on that for the customer right yep that i think that's so very easily overlooked and uh and and you know (laughs) i think it can be sometimes viewed dismissively Mm -hmm. uh by engineers uh man I'm, i'm on a really i'm on a really crazy like anti-engineer like terror today aren't i these dang engineers man why do we need that uh, <laughs> yeah we got github copilot coming out we don't need engineers oh uh, <laughs> now for the record for the record i love engineers i love engineers i am still an engineer myself i'm not just uh i'm not just on my management high horse here <laughs> i mean to to be fair like it's it's important to be able to criticize your own role just as much as you criticize others. Like yeah, <laughs> in in the last three four years, I've you know I, I mentioned this in a previous episode too. It's like I've finally come to understand the importance of having middle management <laughs> <laughs> and actually respecting that role. Like before that, I was like, you guys are just getting in the way. Like. Mm-hmm. Why do we need all these managers, all these VPs of whatever? Then I'm like, wait, everything I'm learning right now, they're there for a reason. Like, Mm -hmm. think about how much less org-wide politics you deal with on your day-to-day. Think about how how many less meetings you're in having to listen to, you know, business decision makers try to figure things out. Mm -hmm. Like... Engineers if, don't want to be in meetings listening to these discussions. They, they again, solution-oriented. They just want to know what they want, they're working on. Right. And so unless you have a, a, a drive to be in those meetings, you should probably, you know, at least look at your 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 product folks, your your managers in a different light. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, okay, honestly, if, if there's ever anybody out there who, who like just hates and doesn't understand managers or product managers for that matter, or any, any role outside of just, you know, uh, hardcore engineering, right? Like if you're not writing code, then you're not providing value. If there's anybody who struggles with that, um, go get a job that is working for a very, very small startup that you interact directly with the CEO. Just get a job. (laughs) that has you working directly with the CEO, try that for six months, and then let's talk. Uh, I guarantee you, your tune will change. <laughs> Heck, you don't work for, for a company who's not primarily tech-driven. Oh, yeah, that too. That, that'll do it too. <laughs> like, or heck, even you, you have that friend who's like, hey, I have 
an idea for an app go work for them yeah go 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 build that for them for a little while and see how that goes <laughs> yeah heck you don't even need to have a friend who says that just hop in an uber like i feel like every other uber is like just start talking to the driver and the driver will tell you like hey man i've got this cool app idea you you code code mm-hmm. that's that's cool man like hey i've got this idea <laughs> oh, tying uh, tying tying all that back to greenfield and brownfield though it's mm-hmm. like with one of the advantages of jumping into brownfield i know you know we've kind of been saying all this in respect to that is one of the advantages is that there hopefully most likely is an actual vision to to head towards like all oh, the yeah. existing work has been helping push that vision forward mm-hmm. um and refining that vision it's it's now your job to refine the code to match that vision um with greenfield that vision may not necessarily be refined yet it's it's you have the big idea but yeah. there's steps along the way that you need to figure out yeah. at, at least with legacy work some of those steps have been figured out some of them were bad ideas but they're still there mm-hmm. because they're accounting for i don't know existing data in the system that needs to be accounted for for whatever reason but it's there um, yeah and so there's... go ahead there's there's a uh, uh, there's a term that's kind of at the tip of my tongue. It's uh, it's in reference to I think it's like photography and maybe possibly a little bit of like a um, like just scenery when you're looking at a picture. There's like elements that like certain elements at certain distances that are that are the focus or that are like focal points, something like that. Widen your aperture. Uh, sure, like that. <laughs> Oh man, I'm full of like stretched analogies today. <laughs> um, I I think that that's that I think that what you're you're getting at with uh with that vision is is really really true. Like um greenfield projects, it's really really hard to get a good grasp of it. It's like you're you're staring at this big wide view, this scenery, and you're not quite sure which elements within that scenery are the ones that you're going to focus on, right? Mm-hmm that you're going to have focus on and that you're going to make part of the scene that you ultimately capture. Um, Whereas brownfield projects, most oftentimes they have that, or at least someone out there can provide more context as to what that should be. And, and it's, it kind of go a little bit goes into that uh, analysis paralysis Mm -hmm. idea, right? When there's so much for you to take in, consider and, and toy around with, it's really, really hard to make that actionable. It's really hard to digest that and actually get started, right? Yeah. Brownfield projects, eh, not so much. You have the sense of direction, or you can at least easily get it and mm-hmm. figure out what where this needs to go. So, so I'm going to extend this this conversation in a, a slightly different direction now. Um, with brownfield projects, you could still be part of a startup, small one, oh, yeah. 10, 10 uh, employee company. It's probably still nebulous what that vision mm-hmm. they're working on is um and, I, and this is where I'm, I'm i want to touch base on is and you probably have a better idea than i do because you work at a, a much larger company than i do mm-hmm. <laughs> um but you know when you're you're searching for jobs you see like what company size do you want to work for small one to ten ten to twenty twenty to a hundred like those matter because from from you know everything I've seen, the size of the company, the 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 number of teams you have, sort of defines which 
portions of that that picture, that image, that vision mm-hmm. have been focused on, and they've built teams around them, and so they need to grow those teams to focus on those parts. Um, yeah, is is that? Yeah, accurate? no, that's that's yeah, that's that's completely accurate. You know, and and I think the 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 reality too is that there's a lot of companies as they grow different things come into focus and different things fall out of focus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's a little bit more of an art rather than a science, right? Um, there's there's sort of, and, and, you know, you can talk to pretty much any business person in the world uh, and they would probably tell you this. You don't ever start out knowing exactly the product that you're going to build. You, the really good product or the really good business people start out knowing a problem or or having a sense for a problem. And then they go validate that. And ultimately the market validates their understanding mm-hmm. of that, right? And so, yeah, it's perfectly, perfectly normal for certain things to come into focus, for businesses to organize around those focuses and and then have that continue to evolve over time. And, and uh, like I myself have been a part of probably more reorgs than I can count at this point <laughs> um, across various different companies. They're not scary, you know, they're not scary. It's actually probably generally a bit of a good sign because it means that they're reacting to something, right? Mm-hmm. They're reacting to new, better information. Yeah. I think that, that's an entire topic yeah. on its <laughs> yeah, own because that's... I'm like, yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> reorgs <laughs> yeah i don't know like I'll, I'll just briefly say but this is definitely a topic for another episode but um for for me i've i've historically seen reorgs as red flags but that's because prior experience has trained me to see them as red flags oh, to, to, your, I... to your point they're not always bad but from my my experience my own personal mm-hmm. lived experience it's usually resulted in bad things. <laughs> that's that's fair. That that is fair. I for for the record, I have seen some some reorgs that yes, they they were the uh, the omen of bad times to come. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, no, um, I think that might be actually a good stopping point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really interesting conversation. I I really I I like the. Um, I like the the notion there there is very very different mindsets that you know I think people can bring green and field uh, green and brownfield projects and ultimately that's going to change you know not only your level of success but your your sense of just enjoyment while you're working mm-hmm. in there um yeah I I guess I want to leave it on like just be curious be curious even if it's not the way that you expect it to look be curious and uh and if you can adopt that you'll you'll have a much easier time working in it yep yep it's all about expectation setting which mm. lo and behold is also required for teamwork mm-hmm. awesome well that's our episode for this week uh Shout out.